in the time before AT&T Fiber Internet. What? What are you doing in me dungeon? It's the only place where the bloody Wi-Fi works. Oh, and you don't mind the spiders? Spiders? What spiders? Oh, no, they're everywhere! In the time after AT&T Fiber Internet. It's nice having fast, reliable Wi-Fi in the whole house. For sure. The dawn of a better Internet era with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Check eligibility at att.com slash getfiber. AT&T smart Wi-Fi extenders may be required. Sold separately. Restrictions apply. You know a spot, but not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the all-new Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. One for hitting the trail. One for catching a wave. One where this happened. Yo, where'd our tent go? Another where the fish get bigger. Every time you tell the story. Some spots, you made your mark. Others, marked you. And one... Okay, let's stay away from that one. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the all-new 2022 Nissan Frontier. With best-in-class standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-foot of torque. Comparison based on 2022 Frontier S versus latest in-market Ward small truck segment. Base models compared based on manufacturer's website. All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Brad Schreiber, and he published a book in August 1st, 2017, titled Revolution's End, The Patty Hearst Kidnapping, Mind Control, and the Secret History of Donald DeFries and the SLA. The SLA, for people who don't know, stands for the Symbionese Liberation Army, and they were primarily active in Northern California. And he's all, uh, Brad has also published other books. He's a prolific writer. Some of the titles, another title is Death in Paradise, an illustrated history of the Los Angeles County Department of Coroner, uh, April 17th, 2017. Another is Becoming Jimi Hendrix, From Southern Crossroads to Psychedelic London, The Untold Story of a Musical Genius. That was published in 2010. And he also has an interest in comedy. So he wrote a couple of books, What Are You Laughing At? How to Write Humor for Screenplays, Stories, and More. And his website is bradschreiber.com. Schreiber spelled S-C-H-R-E-I-B-E-R.com. But we're just going to talk about this. Patty Hearst, I've done a couple of other kind of California mind control interviews with uh, O'Neill, Tim O'Neill, about Manson, Operation Chaos, which comes up in this book. And also Lisa Peace's book on the murder and assassination of Robert F. Kennedy that took place at the Ambassador Hotel. So... This will be a third in this type of uh, scene. Not a really intentional series, but it has, will become a series. So anyway, Brad is going to talk about the book. I finished it today. It's an excellent book. Brad, are you there? Yes, it's good to talk with you, William. Thank you very much. Awesome. So for people who don't know your background or haven't heard of your books, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the subject of Donald DeFries? Yes, um... I'm kind of psychotically eclectic, William, in my interest, and when you do all this deep historical research, you really do need to write comedy books as well. Um, I, will I will tell you that when I was going to San Francisco State um, and the whole uh, kidnapping of Patty Hearst uh, happened, I did some research on my own, and uh, in 1974, 73, 74, if you follow the lead of underground press, such as the Berkeley Barb or down here in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Free Press, 
you learned, even while the story was unfolding, that Donald DeFries, the supposed head of the Symbionese Liberation Army, had been an informant for the LAPD's criminal conspiracy section. So that led me to more research, and the short version of why I finally wrote, after 40 years or so, uh, this book is that Dick Russell, also a terrific writer and researcher, uh, had a three-inch manila file of all the original documents when he wrote an Argosy magazine article called Who Ran the SLA? And I realized this is the last piece of the puzzle. So um, I worked with Dick in getting those documents and connected the California Department of Corrections, the CIA, Ronald Reagan, and the creation of the Symbionese Liberation Army. And that enabled me to write the book with Dick's help. And that's why I dedicated Revolutions End to Dick Russell. And uh, the, the book uh, starts out with this interesting character, these kind of hapless, petty criminal by the name of Donald DeFries. What, what, why is he important? What's he, why is he central to this whole story? He is central, even though the, the public knew about um, the Symbionese Liberation Army, um, not only because of the kidnapping of the famous heiress, Patty Hearst, but also um, there was a bank robbery. Patty Hearst, for those who don't recall the whole story, became a member of the SLA after being kidnapped participate in the robbery of the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco in April of 74. What everyone overlooks generally in talking about this story, they place too much emphasis on Hearst, and they ignore the fact that the, black, the first black superintendent of schools in the history of Oakland, California, Dr. Marcus Foster, was murdered by the SLA in November of 73. And most of the press could not comprehend why a supposedly leftist radical group would kill a black superintendent when the leftist group, part of its reason for existing was fighting racism in America as well as trying to get out of the Vietnam War. Um, the left, right, and center castigated the group for killing Foster. Turns out, as we'll discuss, William, part of Donald DeFries's um, task when he was allowed to escape from prison was in fact to kill Foster. Foster had made um, an opening to the Black Panthers, who, as you know, were founded in Oakland in 1966. So the Black Prisoner Movement, Ronald Reagan, the CIA, the FBI, there were lots of groups in California who were terrified that an open-minded black superintendent of schools would talk to the Black Panthers in Oakland and somehow allow them to get closer to the indoctrination of students in Oakland. And that's why he was murdered. And it's kind of interesting. Some of these same names keep popped up in these different books with Lisa Pease, uh, Evel, Younger. And, it, I mean, you write, there's a whole chapter in your book just about the volatility of California in general at that time with all of these different groups, the Black Panthers being active, and what the, the state itself and really the government of the United States was interested in infiltrating and operating these yeah. Cointel Pro programs. So maybe 
we can talk a little bit about that. Well, absolutely. A lot of people who do political research are familiar with um, MKUltra. Well, MKUltra, a 20-year program to utilize over 100 different types of drugs in terms of mental coercion and what they refer to as behavior modification, was followed by another subgroup um, by the CIA called MK Search. So Donald DeFreeze, after he failed as an informant for the LAPD, was sent to Vacaville Medical Facility. And there, that, that place is a way station, William. Usually people were there for three months, no more than six months. It's a medical facility. And MK Search, the CIA subprogram, actually was funding experimentation on black prisoners at that facility. By the way, I don't want your listeners to think that this was just a pinpointed example. The CIA, through MKUltra, worked with mental hospitals. They had funding at universities, at government institutions. Right. It was incredibly widespread. Right. But for the purpose of our discussion of DeFreeze, he was one of the black prisoners at Vacaville who was experimented on under the guise of MK search of the CIA. And for people who don't know, Vacaville or Vacaville is in between San Francisco and Sacramento on the map. So it's in Northern California, close to kind of where he ended up operating. But he was there for three years and, and uh, he had very inter. I mean, you, the research that you looked into and included was all of these curious figures that he knew who were in the kind of black movement, uh, Ron Everett, Milana, Ron Karenga, and this yep. other character, um, his name is Colston, what was his last name? Westbrook. Westbrook. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about those people that he was around? Uh, I can. Colston Westbrook, to me, is the most fascinating character in Revolutions, and um, DeFreeze is a tragic figure um, who basically was the only guy... Um, when he was um, sent to prison, who was willing to be a dupe, basically a police agent. They had asked, just to give you a little, I, I'm going to get back to Westbrook and, and uh, Karenga, but just to give you a little bit of historical context, Donald DeFreeze wasn't even the first black prisoner that the California Department of Corrections approached to basically create a gang within the prisons and then inevitably allowed him to escape and create a phony left-wing group. He was not the first. There was a black prisoner named um, Hyde who um, refused to do so. And, of course, the reason that many black prisoners didn't take the role that Donald DeFreeze took, William, was because they knew that inevitably they were doomed. Um, if a prisoner found out that you were cooperating as a snitch, you could be killed within the prison. If you were allowed to escape, as DeFreeze was, and the left, the radical left or the Panthers, found out that you are a police agent, you would also be killed. In the case of Donald DeFreeze, and I swear to God I'm going to get back to Westbrook, okay. in the case of Donald DeFreeze, he did the bidding of Colston Westbrook, who was a CIA agent, CIA agent, who used the cover 
of the uh, African American Studies, or it was called the Afro American Studies Program at UC Berkeley, your alma mater. And he set up, Westbrook, a supposed group for black prisoners in Vacaville to talk with white radicals. In the process of doing so, he lured white radicals into the prison and used DeFreeze to befriend them, and that was the creation of the Symbionese Liberation Army. The whole point was to create a phony left-wing group that would undercut the power of the left. And in the 1973-74-75 period, New York was not the center of radical politics. Los Angeles was not the center of radical politics. The San Francisco Bay Area was the center of radical politics. And the driving force was the black prisoner reform movement. So now we come to Colston Westbrook. Fascinating guy, spoke seven languages, had been in Vietnam during the Phoenix program, which the New York Times estimated was responsible for the murder of anywhere between 25 and 40,000 South Vietnamese civilians who were suspected of cooperating with the Viet Cong. Colston Westbrook, um, one of the few black officers in the CIA, was an expert in interrogation techniques. Now, how did he wind up in Vacaville? Well, here's the connection to Ronald Reagan's cabinet. Reagan and his attorney general, Evel Younger, who, by the way, was the most militaristic attorney general in the history of the United States, worked as a consultant for the CIA, um, also was related to Air Force intelligence. Evel Younger and Reagan were extremely concerned about the Panthers and other radical groups that were protesting. They were working with the head of the prisons in California at that time, William. His name was Raymond Procunier. There were lots of knifings. There was lots of violence and gangs. But in addition, Reagan and his staff were concerned because radical white lawyers would represent black prisoners and were taking out of the prisons in Northern California messages to the radical left. So they thought, well, one of the ways that we can break this up is to use a black prisoner to create this left-wing group. Now, the way it was specifically done was through a guy who was the head of counterintelligence for the Reagan administration in California. His name was William Herman, and he knew Colston Westbrook because William Herman was also in Vietnam for the Phoenix program. So now the end of this little diatribe is Colston Westbrook, through Herman, comes and sets up this phony group at Vacaville called the Black Cultural Association while he's guaranteed a job uh, in the Afro-American Studies program at Berkeley, as I mentioned. And he chooses, out of many radical leftist black prisoners, Maoists and others who are advocating the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, he picks on a quiet guy who doesn't have a great command of language named Donald DeFries. And the reason he chose him to integrate himself with the white radicals who were visiting Vacaville is because out of all the black prisoners in Vacaville, there was only one who had been an informant for the LAPD.
and that was DeFreeze. So he was malleable. And before I let you get to the next question, the incentive for DeFreeze to cooperate was not only that he was shot up with a drug called prolixin, which was a terrifying drug, and Bernard Weiner in The Nation wrote about the effects of it. You, you basically couldn't sit still for two weeks, and you felt like you were losing your mind. So not only was drugs used on DeFreeze, but he was allowed to deal marijuana. This was something that went on in the prisons all the time in the 70s in California. If the CDC, the California Department of Corrections, wanted a prisoner to cooperate, they'd say, okay, we need some intel on a gang or somebody who's planning to escape or something. We will let you deal drugs, and the correctional officer gets 70%, and you get 30%, and you are our snitch. Well, that's what happened. DeFreeze not only got 30% of the marijuana he sold, but they also allowed him to sleep with white radical women who were allowed to visit Vacaville. Three of those women wound up in the SLA. They were Nancy Ling Perry, Patricia Soltisic, and yes, Trisha Hurst who used the ID of a friend who looked just like her at UC Berkeley. That was just an incredible fact. I, was, I did not know that, that she had known DeFreeze prior to her kidnapping. I mean, that was just amazing. It makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Right. It, it answers all the questions of why, when the SLA had to communicate saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to kidnap somebody from Standard Oil or the Bank of America, Pacific Gas and Electric was, was a target constantly amongst the radical left. Why kidnap? Well, the answer was he was getting retribution. Patty Hearst and the other two women I mentioned would use um, conjugal visitation trailers at Vacaville to have sex with DeFreeze, who was being rewarded for cooperating. The split, and this is the last I want to talk about Patty Hearst, because she really has no knowledge of the kidnapping, and she's just only the reason we know about the story, but it's not integral to it, is that Patty Hearst, apparently, according to Dick Russell's research and the research of a PI named Lake Headley, very important guy, um, according to those guys, Patty Hearst was asked by DeFreeze, listen, I'm going to get out of here. He didn't say I'm cooperating and I'm a snitch. He led her to believe he was going to escape, and he said, let's kidnap your two sisters, Vicky and Anne, who you don't get along with. We won't hurt them, but we'll get a ransom for them, and we'll use the money for the movement, as they called it. And it was at that point that Patty Hearst went, okay, it was pretty exciting having sex with this handsome black prisoner. This is the end of it. And she told him goodbye. So when DeFreeze was being run by Colston Westbrook, he brought up the idea of kidnapping Patty Hearst because she lived in Berkeley, because he knew her, because he was angry with her, because Nancy Ling Perry, in fact, knew where she lived. So that is why she was chosen and not somebody from Standard Oil or PG&E. Right, makes sense. And I mean, there, you had a, an excerpt from Dr. Colin Ross, who, you know, he, he characterized DeFreeze as a street hood and unsuccessful robber. And his conclusion that DeFreeze was a controlled controller created in part by Phoenix program veteran Colston Westbrook. And I mean, all these drugs that were around or you're talking about, Inectine, 
or you simulate drowning like the drugs they were using upon these guys is terrifying and it showed that even within the prison system the prisoners knew that they could be uh subjected to these terrifying drugs because i think i remember something about hyde was like i don't want to get drugged i don't want to get chemically lobotomized so that fear was legitimate it it was robert hyde uh, who uh, basically was a jailhouse lawyer and was um basically in charge of a prison sla um he was thrown into solitary confinement, and, you know, he was terrified. So he cooperated, and he snitched on other prisoners, but he knew that, you know, if he was the SLA that was going to be created outside the prison, he didn't stand a chance. So that's where his cooperation stopped. Um, it was terrifying. Weiner writing in The Nation, um, there was... Um, there was some great coverage in, in, the, um, in the Napa newspapers about the drugs that were used on prisoners um, at Vacaville. They had a psychosurgery unit, William. They did lobotomies on prisoners at Vacaville. It was absolutely terrifying. Yeah, maximum and, Psychiatric Diagnostic Unit. It's like a horrible uh, title. Yeah, the, yeah. the Lister Unit. It was... And by the way, um, Clifford Jefferson, another prisoner at Vacaville, and DeFreeze, both had these drugs used on them, and um, this, was, this was detailed in the newspapers in 1978. There was a unit called B3, and that was where they took the prisoners under CIA command to use you know, coercive methods on them. And... Sometimes it was because a prisoner was radical, and sometimes it was, let's see if we can break this person, let's see if we can use this person as a snitch. But out of all the experiments at Vacaville, the only prisoner, again, that they could convince to cooperate with them was DeFreeze, because he was ready to get out of there, and he had already cooperated with the LAPD, as I said. So it's almost like they were looking for somebody, like... It just ended up with DeVries. So they went through Hyde. I think there was another character, the guy who, I can't remember his name, the guy with the uh, stomach ailment. Like they were looking around for somebody to be the head outside. Of yeah, there were, there were many of them. There were many of them who knew that DeFries was dealing and, and they assumed, okay, he's getting his drugs from the outside. But one particular prisoner, Damien Tomita, knew that... DeFries was having sex with the women I mentioned. And that was certainly not done uh, with other prisoners who dealt for the CDC. So Damien Tomita warned other prisoners and said, I don't know what's going on, but DeFries is cooperating. And you need to you know, watch out for him. So in the grapevine in Vacaville, they eventually, by the way, um, the BCA I mentioned, the Black Cultural Association at Vacaville, mm-hmm. it eventually fell apart, and Westbrook was accused of being a CIA officer by the prisoners. Now, I don't know how they found out. It's very possible they used someone on the outside to research this. Uh, the news director at KSAN in San Francisco and other people learned that uh, Westbrook had been working for a CIA proprietary right. called Pacific Architects and Engineers. 
Yeah. So in Vietnam, right? So he was working for them in Vietnam. In Vietnam yeah. for the Phoenix program. Right. So somehow they found out about it, and and I tell you, the best confirmation of it is as soon as the rumors hit, the BCA and Vacaville. Vacaville got rid of Westbrook. They said, you're out of here. We're moving you. It was almost as if a spy had had his cover blown. And, um, but interestingly enough, there was this incredible battle of wills played out in the media between Donald DeFries and Colston Westbrook, which I write about in Revolution's End. And it culminates in a very sloppy and haphazard way with one of the SLA communiques from DeFries saying Colston Westbrook is a CIA agent and working for military intelligence. He was angry because basically when they allowed him to escape, DeFries had the, the sense that, okay, I'm going to do what I did for the criminal conspiracy section of the LAPD. I'm going to set up radicals on gun buys. He was setting up um, Black Panthers and others are dealing guns in South Central between, say, 67 and 69. And he thought that's what he was going to do in the Bay Area. Well, no. Unpleasant surprise, we want you to murder the black superintendent of schools, Marcus Foster. And clearly, DeFries had to do it because they could leak that you know, he had been cooperating, and he'd be dead on the outside. So now DeFries had to convince the white followers, who of course had no idea he was a police agent, right. to murder this liberal black superintendent. And they challenged him. Uh, Russ Little of the SLA, I quote in Revolution's End, saying, man, why would you want to kill a black guy with all the people that we hate in Nixon and Reagan's America? Right, there were so many obvious people. targets, right? So many more yes. powerful people or something that they could have a real effect. Instead, it's a local kind of uh, guy who made it, really, the first black superintendent. Well, it goes back to the Panthers. I, I can't stress too much how concerned, how obsessed Reagan and Younger and Raymond Procunier at the CDC uh, were concerned about the Panthers. Because the Panthers obviously were subverted by the FBI's COINTELPRO, but... In the early 70s, they still had a lot of power, and they were a national force, and especially in California and the right. Bay Area. Where right in Oakland, yeah, it. right. I, th yeah. I think Huey Newton is from Oakland. And, uh, I mean, yeah. so the, one of the interesting things is how DeFreeze suddenly gets out of jail, right? So he they gets tra transferred from Vacaville to another jail, and then people let him go, and he calls it an escape, but he was set up to be let to let out, correct? Well, get, get this, William. The guy who enabled his escape was named James Mayfield. He's been ID'd by a number of people, including, and this is really fascinating, I said I wasn't going to talk about Patty Hearst anymore. This is the last time I'm going to mention her. Patty Hearst identified James Mayfield as the guy who drove Donald DeFreeze out of Soledad Prison Soledad. to the Bay Area. What did James Mayfield wind up doing? Oh, he wound up running the Black Cultural Association after uh, Westbrook had his cover blown. How convenient is that? And it's just a kind of a side note, but obviously I have to explain it. DeFreeze 
wound up living with Patricia Soltisik. He just shows up on her doorstep on Parker Street in Berkeley and goes, I've broken out of prison, and I'm going to start this radical group, and you're, and you're going to be part of it. I, I can't explain to your listeners enough what that meant to a radical woman. It was the equivalent of someone loving rock and roll and having Mick Jagger ring your doorbell saying, I want to have sex with you, and I want you to be in the Rolling Stones. That's what it felt like to someone in the radical left to have an escaped black prisoner come to your house and say, I'm forming a group, and I want you to be part of it. Right, so he's like a rock star. But they knew him from Vacaville. They were traveling up to be involved in... Uh, yeah. Prison reform. So they knew DeFreeze. These and all of his followers yeah. were white. Some from wealthy families. Some from varied backgrounds. But they were all Almost kind of all of them were college educated. William. Yeah. And here's the thing: we jump from that to the terrible because because this is a shorter interview. I do like two hour interviews sometimes. They wind up dead. Five white followers who had no idea that DeFreeze was an LAPD. Um, informant, that he had drugs used on him at Vacaville, that he's working with a CIA cover agent and the prisons to create a phony left-wing group. And they want to do something to change America, to fight racism, to get out of Vietnam. Right. And, and six of them wind up being wiped out in South Central on May 17, 1974. And basically... It, it's horrific, and it changes American history because it's aired for two hours on live television on all three networks. It's the advent of the mini camera, these huge cameras that, that in electronic news gathering that they were starting to use. It's the first time America saw SWAT officers on national television. And when they wiped out these people, it basically sent a message to all um, law-abiding people on the left who hated Nixon and Reagan and said, this is what will happen to you if you continue to protest the policies of the United States. And it ended virtually any kind of peaceful approach to ending the war in Vietnam, fighting racism, economic equality. What you, what you got after that were bombings. So in essence, what Reagan did to destroy the left, created more violence because people were so frustrated. Right. And, so, of course, they were furious because they saw, you know, these people who basically, they were accused of killing uh, Marcus Foster um, and robbing a bank. But neither of those things were generally done by the radical left in the 70s. So they had so kind of set they targets. They created yeah. the context. Yeah. Here's the last part of it, William. Okay. They basically, through Reagan and the prisons and, and the CIA, they created the context to denigrate the left through a phony group and then create laws and a sense of terror on people who wanted to legitimately protest. Right. And it changed all history, and it began the militarization of U.S. police. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, the, the other thing is that the culture of the Symbionese Liberation Army was not even created by DeFreeze. That's a telling point. And all of this knowledge and this seven, for people who don't know, Symbionese comes from this idea of symbiotic, but it was a seven-headed snake was their symbol. That came from Westbrook, Westbrook correct? Or was it the other? Yeah, but, 
but no, you're right, and it and it also goes back to a point I I didn't pick up on that you asked about. Ron Karenga, who's the head of U.S. United Slaves, a black nationalist group, which was also being um, uh, infiltrated by the FBI. But here's the thing: Ron Karenga, according to the Wall Street Journal, visited with Ronald Reagan. So he was a cooperative member of the left. And basically, he came up with these seven concepts that were basically used for Kwanzaa, right. the, the, the black religious holiday Kwanzaa. They were created by Karenga. So somehow Westbrook must have had some communication with Karenga, or at least known about what the United Slaves were doing, because he took Karenga's seven concepts and applied them to this seven-headed cobra and gave them to DeFreeze. Right. And he, he gave DeFreeze the name Symbionese Liberation right. Army. DeFreeze was so uneducated, William, that at one point one of the prisoners said, DeFreeze came to him and said, Hey, man, I'm in charge of this new gang. It's called the Lebanese Liberation Army. Right, he couldn't he even get it right. Say the word. But Westbrook knew, knew right, so Westbrook knows Swahili too, so these seven concepts in Swahili transferred over. He gets the name Sinke. Uh, yeah, so a lot, he, it's almost like he was all, all this cultural creation was not from him, is really what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, he was called Sinque, which Sin-Q, is a so. mispronunciation of Joseph Sinke, who was a black prisoner who over, uh, he was a slave who overtook the slave-trading ship, the Amistad. You may remember Steven Spielberg's mm-hmm. movie Amistad. Well, that's the name that eventually led to everybody in the left who was a radical got nicknames. And that was the one that Westbrook gave to um, Donald DeFreeze, but it wasn't even an original name. It was another black prisoner named Rochelle McGee was involved in a shootout at San Quentin. He was given the nickname Sin Q even before. So poor Donald DeFreeze, he was used as a dupe and given a used nickname. Wow. And there's an interesting vignette in the book where he was, DeFreeze is, is in the same jail as Manson, right? And he was trying to rat out Manson. I think you talked oh, about Oh, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, Manson was... Um, was in Vacaville for a brief time, and he wound up in the cell next to, believe it or not, Donald DeFreeze. This is before the creation of the SLA, when DeFreeze was arrested for all his incompetent crimes while he was working with the LAPD. So DeFreeze figured, well, look, I know um, one of the LAPD guys at Hollywood Station. He calls the guy and says, listen, there's some guy named Manson. I don't know what his first name is. <laughs> And I overheard him in the cell next door saying that his people were going to rob the supply sergeant on Hollywood Boulevard on Saturday. If you send your guys over there and catch him, will you help me get out of jail? So his contact at Hollywood um, LAPD said, well, let's see if it happens. Well, it didn't happen. But literally, Manson and DeFreeze were next door to each other at Vacaville for a brief while. And the weird thing is... I conduct bus tours in L.A., William, for a company called Esoteric. Oh, and okay. one bus tour is called Mansonland. 
where we go to all these sites connected to Charlie Manson, and the other is about the SLA, in which we go to sites including where 500 police officers fired 1,000 rounds and eventually set fire to a house on East 54th Street in South Central, as I say, on live television. Right. And that's the last chapter in Revolution's End where I describe the total overkill, the fact that they didn't care that the white followers, many of them had not actually committed any crimes, right. that they all were going to go down in flames because there was no way they were going to allow Donald DeFries to talk about the LAPD, to talk about Westbrook and the CIA, and to talk about Vacaville and the use of drugs on prisoners. They had to get rid of the evidence, and one of the girls got shot in the back, too. It sounded like she was trying to surrender or something, and uh, cops made sure yeah. she died. So it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. Yeah, I yeah. actually, one of the things I discovered in this book, I mean, I obviously did a lot of research because I didn't want to be called a conspiracy theorist, and I got sick of seeing documentaries and books that got everything wrong. The one thing that I personally stumbled onto is the fact that the LAPD did not accidentally set fire to the house on East 54th Street. They were using pyrotechnic grenades, which are used only for outdoor riot control. And they knew that they were flammable. But they had already been shooting at the house for almost an hour on live television, and the SLA wouldn't give up. DeFreeze was destined to go down um, fighting. And they did not want to be in South Central Eight. Uh, almost totally black neighborhood at night with an almost completely white police force. They never said that, but it's clearly obvious that the LAPD decided, okay, we've got to take these guys out. We are not going to have a standoff here at night and have angry blacks pick off our officers under the cover of night. No one would talk about that, including the press. But basically I discovered through the L.A. Times that what they used between the, uh, the, the beginning of the shootout at 5 and the end at 7, they had 75 tear gas projectiles, and then they used these Federal 555. The LA Times called them tear, tear gas canisters. They're not. They're the pyrotechnic grenades, highly flammable, and it's clear the LAPD simply wanted to burn the house to the ground. I discovered that, and it was the first time it was reported in 40 years. Interesting. So they just missed, uh, mislabeled it intentionally. Um, well, yeah, and the, the video of that attack, that uh, standoff is very intense. And I, I vaguely remember seeing it on TV sometime in the 70s oh, yeah. when I was younger. I mean, yeah. it was something else. There were about 100, 100 shots fired in response. The SLA basically hit no one because they were limited in their view. Um, Hey, I'll even give a tip of the hat to Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote a, a, a basically worthless book about Patty Hearst called American Heiress. Even Jeffrey Tubin got something right. He researched the police call sheets on May 17, 1974, and I didn't know this until I read his otherwise worthless book, is that one call from an LAPD car said, do you have any fragmentation grenades? We are reporting to 1466 East 54th Street. The LAPD knew that they were going, at least members of the LAPD who knew about the criminal conspiracy section, 
knew they were going to kill Donald DeFreeze. They're asking for fragmentation grenades that is used in a war. And then, of course, finally, they use the federal 555s to finish the job. And sadly, none of those five white radicals, even if you don't feel sorry for DeFreeze because he was an informant and, and a convict, the five duped, naive, do-gooder white radicals all died and not a single one of them was paid a penny in wrongful death. The LA, the LA City Council refused to consider it. The court refused to consider it. And, and it's terrible. Not a single person ever received any wrongful death money for, for basically what was murder. There was no attempt to negotiate with them on the phone in the house. Yeah, it's a tragedy. So, uh, Brad, we are now at 40 minutes. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? Or I mean, uh, I mean, I think it's an excellent book. People have to go check it out, read it. It's, it's Thank a, you. very well, worthwhile reading. There's, there's so much. I, I say in the addendum that, um, you know, Representative Leo Ryan of San Mateo, who I met when I was a boy, um, knew about this. He, he basically knew what was going on in Vacaville, and he was very heroic. A look into Lake Headley, H-E-A-D-L-E-Y, and um, his book, Vegas P.I. If you want to know about the Phoenix program, Douglas Valentine's The Phoenix Program was, was a huge, huge help. Um, there's a connection to Jonestown. It, right. it's, it's kind of a remarkable turn of events um, in May 17, 1974. And I already mentioned it began the militarization of police because SWAT all of a sudden started uh, infiltrating police departments around the country because of the live two-hour shootout. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an incredible, incredible time. Leo Ryan really was a hero. I didn't know that he had a background in kind of being a CIA watchdog, and then he ends up oh, in he terms was, of... He was the greatest adversary of the CIA. Can you imagine... Leo Ryan, the Hughes-Ryan Amendment in the 70s said any covert CIA operation before it can be done has to be submitted to three or four different committees in the Congress. Of course they hated him. Yeah. And I, I, I won't get into it, <sighs> but Leo Ryan's death in Jonestown is directly related to his adversarial role well, with the CIA. I'm glad you said that because that's what my suspicion was. There was a guy around Jim Jones, his name was Dan Mitrione, who was a CIA operation. Uh -huh. yeah. So it's there. there I mean, it's go. hard for you're people to believe that. Brazil. Right. Yeah, it's and the... for your listeners, the, the short version, because I know you're out of time, is John Judge's terrific piece, The Black Hole of Guiana, mm -hmm. which you can find online, is one of the most concise and perfect summations of the CIA and the State Department's relationship to Jonestown and the, the murder of not only uh, Representative Ryan, but other members of the media. Right. And so then you have John, Jim Jones, Donald DeFreeze, Manson, and Sirhan Sirhan. All California, all have a CIA connection, all have, you know, culture creation and, and all kinds. I mean, it's incredible that all those things took place within that 10 years, maybe. When was yeah, Jonestown, 78? It's phenomenal. It yeah. is. Manson, um, you know, I read O'Neill's book. Um, I appreciate that he published it. On the Manson tour that I do through Esoteric, I talk about the fact that there is, I won't go into it now, but there is a relationship between Manson and the Black Panthers 
Um, and that's one of the reasons that Manson and his followers, when they were swept up in a raid, weren't thrown in jail. Interesting. They right. were being used to try and lure the Black Panthers. Uh. Because, again, Reagan and Younger and the prisons, they all would use anything or anybody to lure the Black Panthers into violent confrontation so that they could sweep them up and arrest them. Right, and Manson shot one of them, right? He shot one Black Panther. If I no, no, the, he shot a guy who he thought was oh, a Black okay. Panther Sorry. named okay. Bernard Crow. Gotcha. But that also figures into the storyline. So don't think about the CIA and Manson. Think about the Panthers, Manson, and then L.A. Sheriff. There you go. And then you'll come to a better understanding of why they let those guys hang out there in the desert instead of throwing them in jail and throwing away the key. So just as an aside in your Manson tour, I take it you were busy this month, huh? Uh, we've got another one, another sold-out one, August 31st. Nice. And we do usually three a year. I also okay. do the SLA one. But uh, I guess there are more blood-sucking ghouls out there who really like Manson. So we've sold out every single one. And oh, good. Um, we stop at a lot of interesting places. We stop at J.C. Ring's former hair salon, and oh, I let people know that J.C. Ring was a major cocaine dealer to the stars. And we get into a lot of stuff that, frankly, still isn't being covered all these years later. How long is your tour? Is it all day? It's four hours. It's like 12 to 4. We build in bathroom breaks and snack breaks. Um, you know, it's very intense for the SLA tour because we wind up at, at East 54th Street. And the location you see is kitty corner to a school. And the LAPD didn't even inform the black school children and the teachers that there was going to be this massive shootout. When you get to that chapter in Revolutions and William, well, you've already read the book, but your listeners, you'll see that the LAPD, oh my God, they should have fired a lot of people. There was, there were LAPD officers digging two, two, three caliber bullets out of buildings so they wouldn't be blamed for errant firing. They kicked down doors of people's homes without due process, and of course, as I say, they. They burn the people to the ground with federal 555 pyrotechnic grenades. Mm -hmm. And not a single person in the LAPD ever was fired or reprimanded in any way. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Brad Schreiber, are you, your website again is bradschreiber.com, S-C-H-R-E-I-B-E-R. -E are you on social media or do you use any social media? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to put interviews like this and, and other things on Facebook. Um, I invite people to write me through my website. And my next book is coming out in November. It's, um, it's called Music is Power, William. Oh, cool. And Rutgers University Press is publishing it. It's the intersection of pop hits and political change in the U.S. from Woody Guthrie cool. right up to hip-hop. Well, I would love to have you back on when that's published. We can talk about it and promote it. So I would love it, and awesome. I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Thank you, Brad. Brad Schreiber, the book title, again, is Revolution's End, The Patty Hearst Kidnapping, Mind Control, and the Secret History of Donald DeFries and the SLA. Excellent book. Highly recommended. Brad Schreiber, thank you. Thanks a lot, William. Okay. Unexpected Trouble? 
CashNet USA can take the stress out of borrowing emergency funds. Our fast, secure application process makes it easy to apply online 24-7. Plus, CashNet USA offers same-day funding if approved before 10.30 a.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Additional terms may apply. Visit CashNetUSA.com or tap the banner to apply today. For generations, a ghost has wandered Canterville. Driven by rage and family feuding, he terrorizes and traumatizes its inhabitants. Is there hope for the haunted? Can love find a way to quell the spectre's cursed rage? BBC and BYU TV present The Canterville Ghost. Watch the whole series for free on BYU TV. BYU TV. 